In large measure, America's history is a history of her transportation. President Lyndon B. Johnson said that. You got to start a podcast for the quote from our president. Just sounds very important. I'm here to share a hugely important part of that history, the history of trucking. The trucking industry has been shaped by and helped shape both world wars, the Great Depression, the oil crises, and the evolution of the entire American economy. It's an industry that has since the beginning promised the American dream, but has sometimes failed to make good on that promise. Hi, I'm Caitlin Wittenberg. And this is part one in my three-part series where I'll take you into the past, the present, and the future of an industry that many call the backbone of the American economy. And it's easy to see why. I mean, look around you. Pretty much everything from the coffee that you're sipping to the chair you're sitting on has been inside a truck at some point. 70% of freight is transported by trucking. And almost every other industry depends on trucking in one way or another. Not to mention the millions of jobs that have been created and the stability provided for families everywhere. Even my family. My grandfather had his own diesel truck repair shop, and without college degrees, he and my grandmother were able to provide a stable life for my dad, which gave him the opportunity to go to law school, which in turn gave me the opportunity to bumble around, go to college, study theater, go back to school, you know, classic millennial fashion, figure my life out. And now, in turn, I can provide opportunities to my daughters. Generations of opportunity created by this industry. So that's why I'm here. Okay, let's get moving. We have to start at the beginning. Well, what I have deemed the beginning, since it fits into a reasonable time allotted for this particular episode. We're going to start with the roads, because without roads, these trucks aren't going anywhere. And the evolution of our roadways, in many ways, goes hand-in-hand with the evolution of trucking. As early as our third president, that's good old TJ, roads and transportation have been seen as a means to a stronger and more united union. And let's just remember, Jefferson was a founding father and the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. He was kind of a big deal. So people pay attention when he emphasizes the importance of roads. In his 1806 message to Congress, he made a point to say that with roads, new channels of communication will be opened between the states, the lines of separation will disappear, their interests will be identified, and their union cemented by new and indissoluble ties, which is why he approved the construction of the national road. But one road does not a nation make. And other than that one good road, the rest of the country was dealing with a combination of footpaths that we stole from the Native Americans, that was kind of our thing back then, and some dirt things we padded out and called roads. And this worked for a bit, but if we're going to get to big rigs filled with frozen peas, we got to get moving, y'all. The creation of a national highway system and the evolution from horses to railroads to trucks carrying the bulk of freight has a lot to do with war. Oh, and bicycles. Yeah, bicycles. In the 1860s, the sport of riding a bike got crazy popular in the United States. And actually, they were called velocipedes at the time, which sounds way cooler. Like, it's like a dinosaur. I don't know why we changed it. Anyway, so picture it. Velocipedes everywhere. Velocipeding around. But every so often, bam, one hits the ground. One tips over. Crash! Another falls. And people on these bikes start noticing that these roads are the worst. And as funny as it must have been for onlookers to see those those goofy bikers falling over and looking so dumb, it would have been unsettling for the bikers. 
So they started the Good Roads Movement in the 1870s, which picked up momentum as they recruited farmers and even the railroad, which you would think is counterintuitive. Why would the railroads promote a competitive form of transport? Here's Dr. Shane Hamilton, historian and author of the book Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy, to explain. As early as the 19-teens and 1920s, railroad companies were actually promoting the so-called good road movement, making roads that were better paved and accessible into rural areas, uh, knowing that trucks would travel over them and you know bring goods from farms. But they expected those trucks not to be competitors, but to actually bring goods from, you know, decentralized farms and, and small towns and so forth into railroad depots. So they saw it as a way to actually build the railroad business. And once you've got good roads penetrating into rural areas, you actually enable the trucking industry to take off. The good roads movement made steady progress on making those good, good roads. But the real shift happened in 1908 when the Model T arrived and basically changed everything. These were the first affordable cars ever, and they completely transformed how the average middle-class person moved around. Greater distances were open before them. We became a people on the move, no longer limited by the endurance of our horses or our own dumb, weak human legs. So the roads had to catch up because we had places to be, and they did. Roads around cities improved, and more and more interstate roadways popped up. I mean, they were mostly dirt, but they were there. Interstate travel became a thing. Okay, so now we have more roads, we can have more trucks. Trucks at the time were being used to transport goods to the railroads and into cities. They specialized in these short hauls, but that's about it. The railroad remained the cheaper and really the only option for any kind of long distance. But then, World War I happened. And Uncle Sam called upon trucks and truck drivers to help in the cause, since the railroads couldn't keep up with all the wartime freight. It was the big break that trucks needed, answering the question, war, what is it good for? Advancing the development of roadways and creating more flexible and efficient distribution of goods. No? Throughout World War I, trucks moved freight across the states, beyond just those short hauls from the farm to the market. And sure, they tore the roads all to hell. Those roads didn't stand a chance. But the trucks got the job done and the military, auto manufacturers, the government, and surely the road builders took notice. All right, we're in the 1920s now. At this point, the automobile is a fixture of American cities. We have lots of people driving around in cars. And because of this, the roads need attention. So the Federal Highway Act established the Bureau of Public Roads and put into place the very first federal funding to actually design, you know, with an actual plan, and construct two-lane interstate highways. Now, if you remember from history class, something else was about to happen in the 1920s. No big deal, just the worst economic collapse in the history of the industrialized world. But despite the Great Depression, the roads still got built. In fact, continued road construction was one of the New Deal projects that infused America with jobs after the Great Depression. Building roads, as well as repairing and upgrading bridges and dams, put hundreds of thousands of people to work. America kept moving. Okay, so we're in the 30s now. We've got more and better roads, which is great for trucking. But bad news bears for the railroads. The railroads have long dominated the market in passenger and freight transportation at this point. And these roads and their pesky cars and their trucks greatly threatened that. 
Therefore, the railroad wanted to do what it could to stifle progress. Since the car was already popularized, they weren't finding that losing battle, but they did see an opportunity to stop the steady growth of the trucking industry. This new upstart industry comes along. These truckers are competing, uh, you know, potentially with, with railroads for freight. The railroad said, well, if we're regulated, then truckers should be regulated as well. And they got that with the 1935 Motor Carrier Act. Thank you, Shane. After persistent lobbying by the railroad, truckers were indeed brought under the control of the Interstate Commerce Commission, or the ICC. This meant huge changes for truckers. The ICC now had the authority to decide what companies could become motor carriers, what services they could offer, and even what rates they could charge. Whereas before, a dude could just be in a truck and move some stuff from one place to another place and basically call himself a truck driver, now he has to seek a certificate of public convenience and necessity. And the ICC did not divvy these out willy-nilly. They were extremely selective, almost always favoring an existing carrier over allowing a new one to enter the market. So, for example, say I want the right to deliver apples on a particular route. I had to apply. And if another existing carrier, who doesn't even typically deliver apples, wants the chance to do so, my application would be denied. Also under the ICC, motor carriers had to file all rates with the ICC 30 days before they became effective. This meant that a competitor could easily see the filed rates and then protest these filings. So if another carrier or, I don't know, a railroad said, oh, that's far too low for me to compete with, they could just protest it and the ICC would typically suspend those new rates pending an investigation. So a lot more red tape. And the railroad surely liked it that way. And so did the Teamster Union. Certainly one of the beneficiaries of regulation was the Teamsters Union. It was able to organize larger carriers who were basically shielded from competition through the Interstate Commerce uh, Commission's regulatory structures. Important to note, there were two agricultural exemptions in the Motor Carrier Act of 1935. They covered farm products and farm supplies, as well as agricultural commodities, this will prove important. More on that later, though. Okay, it's 1941 now, and President Roosevelt's still unhappy with the dang roads. There aren't enough of them. They aren't big enough, and they aren't connecting all the people in places that need to be connected. They're just not roading enough, you know? So he appoints a National Interregional Highway Committee to explore the idea of a National Interregional Highway System. He calls for a report on the state of highways, particularly on the popularity of and the needs of passenger and wartime traffic. No real mention of freight transport, which is interesting considering the growth of that industry. This lack of emphasis on trucking, though, demonstrates a prevalent belief at the time that while trucking had its place, it would always remain inferior to rail and generally only serve short distances in urban deliveries. Oh, how wrong they were. What they were right about, though, is the need to prepare for wartime traffic. Because on December 7, 1940, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. officially entered World War II. And on the home front, life revolved around this war. Food, clothing, and gas were rationed. Women started entering the workforce in large numbers as more men went overseas. Everyday life looked totally different. As for trucking, the tight gasoline and tire rationing actually meant a decrease in transporting freight by truck, which some saw as a kind of reinforcement that trucking had kind of peaked. But clearly that wasn't the case. 
In fact, even though freight carried by truck decreased during that time, World War II was setting into motion some major changes that would have profound effects on the trucking industry and would help contribute to it becoming the eventual backbone of our economy. It was just hard to see at the time, but we can see it now. Stick with me here. First off, World War II changed farming forever. The Great Depression and the Dust Bowl of the 1920s and 30s had crippled farmers, but the war flipped that on its head. When the U.S. officially entered the war, the need for food increased substantially. In fact, the American farming community gained more from the wartime economy than any other segment of the U.S. population. Between 1940 and 1945, the average farmer went from a net income of just over $700 to over $2,000. Farmers were crazy busy, especially as more men were overseas and there were less farmers to go around. To keep up with demand, millions of acres of new fields had to be created and maintained, and better farm technology was needed, such as the tractor. Motivated to keep them eating, which was a patriotic slogan at the time, farming experienced a massive growth in output and productivity. This is when the small family farm started to evolve into something else. This was the onset of the industrialization of farming. Over time, as farms got bigger, the number of farms decreased. Small and mid-sized family farms started to die out because they couldn't compete with the hugely productive, more industrialized farms that were taking over. Wait, 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 wait. What? Isn't this a trucking podcast? What does this have to do with trucking? Good question, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. I'll tell you. The march to big agribusiness meant more and more rural farmers needed work, and many turned to truck driving partially because they had very few options otherwise, but also they saw hope in truck driving. The freedom and autonomy that farming provided and the pride they took in caring for their land and building something on their own without the eyes of some authority figure watching over their every move, that mattered. They saw opportunity for that same freedom in trucking, a life on the open road, just a man and his truck. So many chose truck driving over, say, moving to the city and making higher wages, because that freedom and sense of economic independence couldn't be bought with higher wages. So men grabbed their trucks and off they went. Off to a new life. Not an easy one, but one of their own making. Okay, so now we're getting into the 1950s and the trucking industry is more and more proving its value, particularly when it comes to flexibility. So I mean, one of the things that trucks provide, of course, is flexibility. See, told you. Sorry, go ahead, Shane. In that trucks can go places that railroads can't. So if you're a company looking to relocate your factory to an area where you can have workers who are highly skilled, highly educated, but are willing to take lower pay, so you're looking at a rural area, uh, if that rural area doesn't have a rail depot that's going to provide you the kind of connection to major consuming centers that you need, then trucks you know, might very well provide the service. One area where this flexibility was particularly apparent was made evident in the 1950s, and it had a lot to do with TV dinners. Okay, let me explain. We've got the railroads, and they've been around since the 1830s, quite a bit longer than trucking, which is an advantage in many ways. They had infrastructure, lobbyists, deep pockets to fight off the trucking industry. But one thing about being old is you suck at technology. That's just a thing that's true. And when a refrigeration unit was developed that could transport large amounts of frozen goods, trucks could adapt quickly. Rail could not. So these reefers, as they are called, no, no, get out of here, Afro man, not the kind that make you eat a bunch of food, the kind that transports a bunch of food. 
These reefers meant that frozen food producers opted more and more for trucks over the railroad. Trucks are actually much more reliable at shipping cold and especially frozen goods than were railroads. Railroads continued to rely on uh, manual icing, basically, rather than having uh, mechanical refrigerators installed well into the 1950s. And even then, trucks had a superior technology to the rails. So as the distribution of frozen food became easier, thanks to trucks, frozen food grew in popularity. A swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven ready and individual heat and serve trays. As more of the nation could experience the incredible convenience of frozen OJ from concentrate, fish sticks, frozen french fries, frozen pizzas, and let's not forget a little thing called the founding of McDonald's, which also depended on frozen food. We entered a time of unprecedented convenience. The convenience economy that all of us Americans are living now was born, and it was in large part thanks to trucking. And trucking got another boost in the 1950s. Remember way back when Roosevelt was trying to build a legitimate interstate system, but then got distracted by Nazis and other slightly more pressing issues? Well, President Dwight D. Eisenhower finally renewed interest in the plan in 1954. Now, let's put ourselves in the mindset of the railroads for a minute. This is an industry that had once owned pretty darn close to 100% of passenger traffic in the country, but only held 31.4% by 1957. Now we have these trucks who had in the 1930s only held 3% of freight, but by the 1940s held 10% and had steadily been growing basically ever since. All these losses are happening to the railroad, and now you've got bigger, better roads being designed? These roads meant bigger, better trucks were going to start encroaching on long-haul transporting, which was the one area where the railroads still had a stronghold. So the railroad ain't giving up that easy. When it came time for the federal government to find the way to pay for these new roads, the railroad had a lot to say. They argued that truckers should pay the brunt of the cost and fought for punitive taxes on big trucks. They framed it by saying, The heavy trucks will do the most damage to the roads, basically, not passenger vehicles, so they should be taxed at a much higher rate. They got that message across with an avalanche of letters, wires, and calls to Congress. But the truckers fought back, saying this would destroy an entire industry, which is bad for the truck driver and bad for the consumer. They enlisted rubber manufacturers, tire dealers, farm groups, and the major union at the time, the Teamster Union. The union, not so subtly, reiterated in an estimated, oh, I don't know, 100,000 telegrams sent to Congress. Within these telegrams, the Teamsters politely reminded Congress how important their resources, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, would be to those Democrats in doubtful congressional districts. So yeah, lots of politics at play here. But a compromise was finally made in 1956. Okay. Let's transport ourselves on over to the 60s now, shall we? So the 60s, we got bigger, better roads, more and more freight in trucks, and also more female truck drivers. 
much to the dismay of quite a few male truck drivers who saw driving a truck filled with the TV dinners as the man's job and putting that TV dinner in the oven and fawning how big and strong he was as the woman's job. But the rise of feminism in the 60s emboldened many women not to give a hoot about what these men thought. And they drove those big rigs anyway. To them, it was a route to independence and freedom. The open road that appealed to so many men? Huh, it appealed to women too. The truth is, though, the unions made it nearly impossible for women to gain employment as truck drivers. And working conditions made it difficult for women too. Think about it. There were no bathroom facilities designated for them. If they wanted to take a shower, they had to chain the door shut and find someone to stand guard so they could have some privacy. But despite these difficulties, the number of female truck drivers continued to increase over the next decade. In 1960, there were in total 11,600 female truck drivers. By 1970, there were 30,700 female truck drivers, which... To be fair, is only a 1% increase when compared to total truck drivers, but an increase is an increase, particularly in an industry so entrenched in the idea of masculinity. And women weren't the only ones having a difficult time in trucking. Black truck drivers had it tough. They dealt with segregated bathrooms, segregated truck stop diners, racist union leaders, and significantly lower wages than their white counterparts. In 1960, the median income for a white truck driver was $11,820, while that of a black driver was only $6,814. This gap narrowed slowly into the 70s and 80s, but the discrimination that kept black truck drivers from getting better jobs continued. There was a case that actually ended up in the Supreme Court, in which a trucking firm alongside the Teamster Union had employed 1,820 white over-the-road truck drivers, but only eight black drivers even though there were many qualified black drivers looking for work. The court ordered the firm and the union to make long-haul jobs available immediately to black workers who had clearly been denied employment because they were black. So yes, being a woman or an African-American truck driver was especially difficult at this time. But many persisted. Now we're getting into the 70s. Basically, the 70s were the frickin' heyday of truck driving. America loved truck drivers. Trucking culture was everywhere. Truckers were modern-day cowboys, outlaws. They were also often betrayed as womanizers. Interestingly, and somewhat paradoxically, there was also a popular image of the truck driver as the family man. He worked long, lonesome hours for his wife and kids at home. He took to the road to provide for his family. A noble and yet contrasting image to the other dominant stereotype of the bad boy Flanderer. Either way, they were folk heroes, and because of this, elements of trucking culture seeped their way into popular culture, including plaid shirts, trucker hats, CB radios, and even CB slang. I don't, I don't know what I just said, but it, but it felt, it felt real good. And let's not forget the movies and numerous songs centered around trucking culture that came out in the 1970s. Smokey and the Bandit was the third highest grossing film in 1977 after Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And so many songs. Just to name a few, we got Truckin' by The Grateful Dead. Six Days on the Road by Dave Dudley. Truck Driving Queen by Bud Brewer. Queen. 
Oh, and On the Road Again by Willie on Nelson. In 1976, the number one hit on the Billboard chart was Convoy by C.W. McCall. About a convoy of truck drivers evading speed traps and toll booths across America. That song subsequently inspired an action film by the same name, which came out in 1978. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie poster for that movie, I'm going to post it to my Twitter because it's just so, 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 so good. And then 1979 happened. Remember that trucking had been heavily regulated since 1935. This regulation had been wearing on drivers. Well, particularly rural drivers. Here's Shane again. One of the features of the regulatory state that was in place from the 1930s until 1980 in terms of trucking was that the federal government worked together with relatively large businesses, the regulated common carrier trucking firms, and organized labor in terms of the Teamsters to create a business model that was not hyper-competitive, but it did provide quality service to a range of shippers at reasonable prices, but those prices were clearly inflated artificially by this government action and by the collusion, if you will, between organized labor and the big firms. That had clear benefits for the drivers who belonged to the Teamsters Union, who made good wages and had steady employment. It also had clear benefits for the firms who were shielded from competition, who made steady uh, profits through the whole period. However, it left out a bunch of people, including the rural truckers who, as of the 1935 Motor Carrier Act, were actually exempted from all of that regulatory structure. So those are the truckers that I really focus on in the 60s and 70s, who, as the American economy starts facing more competition in the globalizing environment, are finding themselves pressed, and particularly pressed in 1973-74, and again in 1979, by rising fuel prices. And those are the truckers who are most virulently opposed to, on the one hand, the Teamsters, and on the other hand, the big trucking companies that they see benefiting from what they see as unfair regulatory structures. So these rural, white, by and large, working class truck drivers revolt against what they see is the economic intervention of New Deal liberalism the whole regulatory state, and they say they don't want any more of it. And all this antagonism towards the system finally came to a head in 1979. The final catalyst? The 1979 oil crisis. That summer, the superhighways went eerily silent without the sounds of the 18-wheelers roaring past. The silence was sometimes broken with the sound of bullets being shot through the sides of trucks, glass breaking, and the sounds of angry men and women shouting. Nine states even sent National Guard to deal with the violence. Dozens were injured, and there was even one death. Not everyone was violent. 75,000 truckers peacefully protested by blocking interstates and fuel pumps and refusing to transport goods at all. There was panic in suburban regions as truckers refused to haul food supplies to supermarkets. And it worked. They got what they wanted. President Carter signed the Motor Carrier Act of 1980 on July 1st. Uh, with the consequence is that after 1980, those very same truckers have faced real difficulties making a decent living. 
Pretty much immediately after deregulation, the industry saw a drastic increase in the number of trucking companies. After 1980, cutthroat competition came back. So firms had to find any way they could to stay in business, and many did not. Hundreds of firms went out of business almost immediately after passage of the act. Now we've reached the present state of trucking, one of intense competition, lower rates, and one that does not always prioritize the needs of the truck driver. But that's for another time. More on just how major this industry is these days, and on the pretty incredible opportunities in trucking on the next episode of On The Move. On The Move is a Dynamo podcast. Dynamo is the premier fund for logistics, transportation, and supply chain startups. Learn more about Dynamo at dynamo.vc. A special thanks to Dr. Shane Hamilton for taking the time to answer my questions and for writing his book. This podcast was written, produced, hosted, all that stuff by this guy, Caitlin. Say hi to me on Twitter at Caitlin Writes, K-A-T-L-Y-N-W-R-I-T-E-S. I'll be posting bonus content like historical pictures and, and fun stuff like that. So check it out. All right. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned. We're in this for the long haul. Oh, God. I did the whole episode without one trucking pun and then blew it at the end. <laughs>